Hi again, I'm Jack Lesenberry, and welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. Today we're going to look at the auto industry, especially the American auto industry. We're going to talk today with one of my favorite experts on the industry, somebody I most respect, but I want to start by making a few observations from my very much layman's point of view. You know, it's hard to remember now, but 11 years ago, there was a very real possibility that the domestic auto industry in this country might not survive. Both Chrysler and General Motors were in grave danger of falling into uncushioned bankruptcies that would have destroyed those companies, at least as we know them now. Had that happened, their demise would likely have taken many suppliers with them, and that could also have taken down Ford. Had the worst happened, we might have been looking at a rerun of the Great Depression, at least in Michigan. Of course, that wasn't the way it turned out. Though Congress showed little inclination to help the industry, first the outgoing president, George W. Bush, and then Barack Obama committed billions to bail out the auto industry. The result was, by nearly any measure, an enormous success. Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler are now alive, well, and rolling in profits, but Chrysler was essentially forced to become a subsidiary of Fiat as part of the deal. But as we all know, this is not the auto industry of our youth, my youth anyway. Far fewer people work on assembly lines. Most vehicles sold in the United States are not made by what we used to call the big three. The vehicles we used to call cars, sedans, are almost an endangered species. The SUV is standard these days. 65% of vehicles made in the United States, sold in the United States rather, are made here. But many of those are made by transplants. And it's no longer easy to say what a foreign car is. Is it a Chevy made in Mexico? Is it an Acura made in Ohio with 76% American parts? When it comes to auto, work, to auto workers themselves, the world's also different, and getting more so. Back in the days of Walter Ruther and Doug Frazier, the United Auto Workers Union was known as the cleanest and most incorruptible one around. Now the UAW is mired in a terrific and far-reaching scandal that may result in some of the union's top leaders going to prison. This comes after years that have seen the UAW membership shrink by almost three-quarters and the union's repeated failure to organize factories not owned by the big three, or I should say these days, the Detroit three. Add to this the phenomenal growth of driverless and electric cars and the coming world of vehicles that drive themselves, and it's clear that the auto industry of 2049 may be as different from today's as ours is from 1979. The Metropolitan Detroit is the place to put the world on wheels. Sometimes I eat lunch in a Coney Island started by a former Model T assembly line worker in a building that stands almost in the shadow of Henry Ford's now-deserted old plant, a place that transformed the 20th century. This city grew up with and around the auto industry, and I don't see our rendezvous with each other and with destiny ending anytime soon. But having said that, I want to turn to someone who knows what's really going on. Christian Dicek is Vice President of Industry, Labor, and Economics for the Nonprofit Center for Automotive Research in Ann Arbor. She has degrees in Economic, Public Policy, and Engineering, all from the University of Michigan. She's one of the most quoted and respected automotive policy analysts in America. Kristen, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me, Jack. So what is your assessment? This is a totally unfair question, of course, but... The general health of the domestic auto industry, AD 2019. It's pretty good. Um, you know, it's been an unprecedented expansion um, since 2009, the depths of uh, a very uh, sharp contraction in automotive sales. Uh, you know, there was nowhere to go but up. Right. Uh, but, you know, these companies have turned back to being extremely profitable. They were able to shed um, liabilities off their, their balance sheet as well as plants and and other um, assets to the, the bankrupt shells of their former selves um, to get to a point where, you know, we've had, uh, you know, a decade of really very profitable operation. 
Now, you're kind of a unique person in that you understand the industry from both the management and the labor point of view. You worked for a, a nonprofit think tank that was founded by former head of General Motors, or his son, rather. His son. Uh, his son. And, of course, you worked for the UAW at one time. What's your opinion of the current contracts that have now all been ratified? They look to me on the surface as if they're pretty good for the union. They are pretty good for the union. I think, you know, the only thing the union might have sought um, and didn't really get back is some, um, they didn't get to change the letter about uh, outsourcing, really, or closing right. plants. Um, so there is, in all three agreements, some version of a, you can't close plants during the term of an agreement. Right. Um, GM proved that you could unallocate plants during the term of an agreement, and that that protection, that job security protection of not closing plants, plant closing moratorium, stays exactly as it was. What's the difference between unallocating and closing? You know, in actuality, nothing, um, other than it took the agreement of the union to um, eventually close those plants. And that's always been the case, that, you know, if a plant... Uh, didn't have product, it could be on idle status, and sometimes they called it warm idle, you know, we right. might bring it back if we need to, um, but it always takes the agreement of the union to close a plant. Um, sometimes it has taken one or two contract cycles for a plant to eventually close, and there I'm thinking about a plant like Janesville in right. Wisconsin. Um, this was remarkably quick. Um, GM made the announcements uh, a year ago in November, um, and then the closures were made final in this year's negotiations. No. So, you know, that I think that they didn't get any flexibility in, um, the union didn't get any flexibility on bringing product back from Mexico or changing the, the North American footprint at all. They got a lot of investment in North America and in the U.S., um, but it didn't move the needle on what was already allocated to Mexico. For those who haven't followed all of this, uh, last year, about a year ago, General Motors uh, upset a lot of people by announcing they were closing a number of plants, including two Detroit area plants, mm -hmm. the one that was always referred to as Pole Town, another one in Macomb County. Um, what's the status of those plants now? So they um, unallocated those two plants, uh, the Detroit Hamtramck Assembly Plant, Warren Transmission, Baltimore Transmission, Lordstown Assembly, and the Oshawa, Ontario Assembly Plant as well. Um, you know, those plants, Oshawa is going to close uh, very soon. Baltimore and Warren and Lordstown are closed or, or closing. Um, and Detroit Hamtramck lives to fight another day with $3 billion worth of investment in the plant and the product that will go in there. So that was brought back from the unallocated status with new product. And, th and $3 billion in terms of scale right. is huge. The new um, Toyota Mazda plant that um, was allocated to Alabama is $1.6 billion. Wow. Um, so this is almost double what Toyota and Mazda is putting into a brand new, super huge assembly plant. So will Detroit Hamtramck employ as many people as it always did? It's unclear. Um, so, you know, electric uh, powertrains and propulsion systems uh, have fewer moving parts, uh, and they don't necessarily require the same amount of labor. And that's one of the concerns the union had. At their convention um, earlier this year, they uh, released a paper. You can get it on their website. Uh, that talks about you know their jobs that are at risk in the whole supply chain for internal combustion engines. You know you don't need piston rings and uh, you know valves and all the you know engine blocks and things like that when you're moving to a motor and battery situation. So, um, what about the the big bone of contention with unions? Of course, is at the worst times they had to agree to sort of having a second class citizen of automotive workers. Mm -hmm. So. 
Uh, the second tier was agreed to in 2007, and you know, it's a way to try to avoid 2009, the bankruptcy and the you know devastation that happened. Then they were trying to head it off um, by letting new workers be hired in at a wage that was essentially half of what the legacy workers made. Right. Um, they got a different set of benefits. They did not um, have the same health care plan. They didn't have the same post-employment benefits. They don't have a pension. Um, you know, a lot of things were different about that. It's not like permanent temp workers in a way. Well, I mean, they weren't temp. They were, per- right. they were, you know, they had seniority and they could, you know, bump for new jobs and, um, and, and that, but they were, you know, a separate, uh, a separate bargain for the wage right. and benefits, um, both active and in retirement. Um, so in this contract, all of those people who were hired after 2007 and before the signing of this contract um, at GM and Ford and at FCA, um, by the end of this four years, will be all making the same wage as the legacy workers, those hired before 2007. Same wage and same benefits? Not exactly the same benefits. Um, so they'll have the same health care benefits. Um, at GM and Ford, they've had the same health care benefits since 2015. Chrysler just you know, caught up on that in this contract, assuming it ratifies uh, this week, which it should. Um, then they will have the same uh, health care, but they will not have access to a pension. They instead get money put aside for the retirement. Something they get like a 401k? Something like a 401k. And then they get... Um, a dollar per hour worked that's put away for um, them to buy health care in retirement so they don't have access to the VIBA, which was the other transformative thing that happened in 2007, was taking that legacy load of paying for retiree health care off the books of the car companies and putting it in the hands of a union-managed fund. Do we have an idea how the union has administered that fund? Does it look like it's in good shape? It does look like it's in pretty good shape. Um, so there's three funds, and you can and there's uh, public reporting on this, so you can pull it um, and see how well they're doing. Um, and it shows that the uh, assets available to pay benefit obligations are they're near 100 percent, 90 to 100 percent thereabouts. Um, and they started off in the hole. I mean, they set this in place um, in 2005. There was a beginning of Aviva, 2007. Um, they set it in place. It was supposed to start on January 1st, 2010, and there were some investment assumptions about what that money would do between 2007 and 2010 that obviously got wiped out by the wow. uh, 2009 market. So they started in a, in a bit of a hole, um, but they've come back up to you know being fairly well-funded for the obligations they have going forward. Do you have any idea how many auto workers there are now in the, in the United States? Um. You know, it varies. <laughs> of course. Um, and, you know, they were, uh, yeah, I can't tell you right off the top of my head, but it's, it's you know, if you, auto and parts were around, uh, around eight, 900,000. So, so this is still a fairly major chunk of the American economy. It is. And it's, um, the other part about it is it's not just a job, like that there's this job and it's not associated with any other jobs. Right. And um, that's something, you know, economists call an employment multiplier. Right. Um, you know, many jobs, like a salary job, there's not a lot of a supply chain behind those jobs. So, you know, your job, you, right. you know, because you're working, you know, then people need to make headphones and microphones and, and uh, audio studios and stuff like that. But that's, that's a very small multiplier. But because somebody's working in an assembly plant, there is somebody who is making all of the parts and materials and, you know, the steel and the aluminum and sure. the advertising and the engineering services and the accounting services and all of those things that go into this industry. And this industry has a big buy from the rest of the economy. And that means those jobs 
have huge multipliers. And we just did um, an analysis on General Motors jobs on, on the multiplier, right. and it's about 10.5. So every one job, an hourly job at General Motors, supports 10.5 other jobs in the U.S. economy. So, so layoffs have a much more devastating effect than you might think. They do. And, you know, a, a salary job, like I said, doesn't have that same kind of supply chain behind it. The salary jobs maybe have one, one and a half other jobs associated with them, and it's largely because of them spending their paycheck in the economy, not because of a big, fat supply chain behind their job. It seems to me, and I don't know this for sure, but that the industry has been on a terrific roll for a long time. It's been since they came out of the recession. There really hasn't been any other real major dip in automotive sales in the United States. Is that, is that sustainable? Um, well, you know, we're an industry that has a record year and then freaks out. Right. Like, oh, no, the sky is falling. We just had a record year. Um, so, you know, 2016 uh, was our, our peak for auto sales in the U.S. Last year was 17 million. Now we're at 17. I mean, 17 million sales is a darn good year. It's a lot of cars. It's a lot of cars and trucks and CUVs. And, um, you know, if this is the soft plateau, like I think anybody in the industry would take this. This is pretty good. Um, but... Yeah, there is a concern, and there are there's a wide range of forecasts for 2020. Um, our forecast at the Center for Automotive Research is that it's going to come in around 16.5 million next year, um, so a little bit of a dip. But there's forecasters who are who are coming way way down, and some who are a little more exuberant. So you know, we really don't know. In other words, we don't. It's, it's like pol political polling. We don't really know. It, you know, you, you get a wide range of answers when depending on what people's assumptions are. And, you know, the, I was just at the um, the end of November, the uh, University of Michigan has the research seminar on quantitative economics and their outlook right. for the U.S. and Michigan economy. Um, and those both, um, their forecasts are looking fairly solid, and the auto industry looks to hold up uh, well. I mean, there's a pattern that goes back over, over 60 years that as long as we have GDP growth um, around 3%, that the auto industry will grow. And we've had sub... A sort of lackluster GDP growth in the right. two two and a half percent range, and we've still had G, uh, automotive sales growth. Um, so as long as the overall economy is doing well, people have jobs, unemployment is low, people need cars. And uh, while I don't know cars, I know politics, and people, politicians like to those in power anyway like to make the economy keep going during election year, which of course twenty twenty is going to be. So. It's really bad to crash in an election it's, year. It's bad for anybody in power when they crash in election year. So the shape of, you know, you, you certainly worked for the union. The union, I'm wondering, do you think that the scandal the UAW is enduring now had any effect on negotiations? I don't know. I mean, I think it certainly had an issue with, um, with and, the, and they're still in, involved in rebuilding the trust of the membership, um, right. that they trust that their leaders are negotiating uh, agreements that are in their best interest. And I think, you know, the people who um, are in charge now have said that they're committed to, you know, going out and, and making sure that they um, rebuild that trust and, and talk with members and get get everything right with the world. Um, but they're also trying to get right with the world to avoid a, a government takeover. Well, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So they've got a lot, they have a lot of incentive to clean up their act. Yes. And who is the head of the UAW? Who is, tell us a little bit about the new head of the UAW. You know, I don't really know very much about him. Um, Rory Gamble is the uh, president. He's just been installed through the next convention. Um, he uh, comes out of Ford, uh, was the leader of Region 1A, um, ran the Ford department. 
um, and then was selected to fill in temporarily when Gary Jones uh, took a leave and then is now in the permanent position of, at the helm of the union. I started talking about the different. I said we're going to focus on the domestic auto industry as a auto industry. Pardon me, as opposed to the non-domestic or foreign auto industry. But more and more, there's a real blurred line, isn't there? Well, there is, and you know, there's. I think there's going to be more of a blurred line as we go forward. I mean, you also mentioned some of those big changes that are coming to the auto industry in terms of, uh, you know, the move toward electrification, not just battery electric right. cars, but more electrification overall. Wasn't Mary Barr just saying that they may they're going to make electric trucks at the Detroit? Hemtramck? Yeah, Detroit Hemtramck is going to be making electric trucks. The old Lordstown plant was sold to a company called Lordstown Motors, um, which came out of a company called Workhorse that makes electric trucks. Um, of course, Tesla just demonstrated the uh, Cybertruck, right. electric truck. Uh, there's going to be an electric F-150. Uh, Rivian, a company that's uh, got an engineering office here in Michigan um, and is going to manufacture in Illinois, is also going to make electric pickups. Um, you know, the move toward electrification is huge. Uh, the move toward automation of the driving task is huge. And, you know, you can come back to uh, Sergio Marchione's uh, confession of capital junkie that, you know, there needs to be some co uh, consolidation or joint ventures or co-investment in, in many of these areas because no one... One co company can't do it by themselves. No one company can be on the front lines of all of these things. And, you know, an example um, is uh, cruise automation. So General Motors buys this company called Cruise right. Automation. And then Honda's like, hey, we like what they're doing. And so Honda invests in that. Now, is Cruise an American company? Because it's owned by General Motors, has investment from Honda. General Motors is one of the largest automakers in the world and is making a lot of money selling cars in China, right. but they're headquartered here. So is General Motors an American company? Um, you know, this administration uh, in Washington just um, in November, a date came and went that they were going to um, potentially impose additional tariffs on imported cars and parts. Right. Um, they didn't release the study that they did to justify that um, under the basis of national security threat of these imported cars and parts. Uh, but they did have a proclamation, a presidential proclamation. And that proclamation said, basically, Ford and General Motors are the only American companies. Um, and that their loss of market share has hampered their ability to do R&D. And that by protecting Ford and General Motors, they would build back the U.S. Um, R&D Base. As an economist, what do you think of that proposition? Um, the U.S. R&D base is pretty huge and is contributed to by, uh, you know, Toyota has a big tech center in, in Ann Arbor. Um, Honda's doing a lot of R&D here. Uh, a lot of the suppliers, Conti, Denso, um, Aishin, you know, some of our top suppliers are foreign headquartered but are doing R&D here. Michigan is the largest uh, automotive R&D state, and it's not all. Ford and General Motors. Right. Um, over time, the percentage of vehicles in this country sold by the Detroit Three has gradually diminished. Is that still going to go on? Are, are the transplants going to have a larger and larger share market share, or do we not know? Um, you know, the state the market shares seem to be stabilizing pretty pretty well. I mean, the, there's always GM is still the largest uh, market share in the U.S. Um, Toyota and Ford have been battling it out for one, for two and three. Toyota's in the second position right now. Um, and, you know, they go, you know, neck and neck all year long and, and right. battle that out. Um, you know, it depends. So there's about um, 
24% of vehicles sold in the U.S. are made in the U.S. by international producers. Um, and 25 or 26% of vehicles are made in the U.S. by U.S. producers. Uh, then we get another 25% of vehicles from Canada and Mexico, and about half of those are made by GM, Ford, and FCA in Canada and Mexico for sale in the U.S. Um, our next largest trading partners are Japan, at about 10% of vehicles sold in the U.S. are imported from Japan. Um, and then Germany, England, Italy, uh, um, India, China, France, right. you know, make up all the rest of it. So, again, it's, it's almost not a useful thing to talk about, domestic versus foreign cars. You know, we, and the way we count it, we count it three different ways. Um, for There's a domestic versus foreign fleet in our fuel economy regulations. There is a label that's on the car that you buy that says the American Automobile Labeling Act, but it counts U.S. and Canada content. Right. Um, and then as part of NAFTA, which is going away, there was... Being replaced by the new NAFTA or USMCA. USMCA. Yes. Um, there is a content... Reg uh, regulation under that as well. So, like, there's th three different ways that we look at what counts as content. We've certainly seen a lot of instability, not maybe if not instability, changes in ownership of auto companies, companies combining. Do you think right now the Detroit Three are pretty stable where they are, self-standing GM, Ford, and then a Chrysler, which is still owned by Fiat? Is that a likely likely to continue for the foreseeable future? I think GM and Ford will. Um, Chrysler, as you know, is um, you know in the midst of a potential merger with PSA, uh, right. Peugeot. Um, Chrysler, under Sergio Marchionne, was was looking to dance with right. his words um, with other automakers because the scale of investment in this industry and the right. scale of being a global player Marchionne was mentioned died a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah, but you know his words live on in right. many places, um, and you know just. To be a full-line automotive producer is a huge, huge, huge investment. Right. Um, and, you know, even Fiat Chrysler as it stands now is really a truck and SUV producer. They're, you know, they're not making cars. They're importing a few, um, but they're not a full-line producer anymore. Now, last year at the auto show, I talked to a number of experts about the so-called autonomous vehicles, self-driving vehicles. And they were really all over the lot. Some people said, you know, this is actually coming. Others said, the only thing you're going to really see is enhanced cruise control and and maybe little sections of some downtown uh, cities where the, you might actually have a self-driving car area. What's your take on all this? Well, I think it's important to note that the vehicles that are available now are um, so SAE, the Society of Automotive Engineers, right. it used to be called, but it's now just SAE. They um, set out the standards, the J3016 standard for what is automation. Um, and it goes from automation level zero, right. which is probably a car you had in 1979, right. um, to automation level five. Automation level five is the car itself can drive itself in all conditions, all roads at all times with no human intervention. So that is this right. like platonic does, does ideal. That, that doesn't exist. That does not exist. <laughs> um, and where we are now is, you know, Tesla and um, and uh, Cadillac and uh, Audi and a few others right. are producing systems that are called level two. Level two is a conditional automation. So you know the the GM system, the the Super Cruise, is on certain highways. The car can drive itself with your hands off the wheel. Um, can it turn? 
Uh, it does not change lanes. It does not know what to do if there's construction on the road because the, the roads have been mapped. Right. Um, so it goes with what it knows the road is. Um, and if you look away for a second, you're going to be prompted to get back engaged in monitoring the driving task. So it doesn't if, sound like much of a labor saving. Uh... It's, you know, I drove it this summer when I had to take my kid to camp and then go back up and get him at camp right. again. Um, and I actually put a lot of miles on that car. Um, you, it, it's amazing how relaxing it is to just, but I mean, then you're kind of bored. You're just sitting there. Right. You have to be paying attention. You have to right. be looking at the road. Um, you can't be texting. You can't be tinking with the sound system or whatever. Um, I actually think I'd be more apprehensive. And, well, you know, I-75 up to near the bridge is where sure. I was going, and there's hardly anybody on the road, and I right. just, you know, stay yeah. in one lane and let the car drive itself. Um, I did not feel as fatigued when I arrived as I have on that drive in the past. Um, but it wouldn't change lanes. Um, it would... Could you take over at any time? And, and you and you right. do take over at any time, right. and you have to take over when it prompts you. Right. Um, and it prompts through, you know, flashes, it jiggles on the seat, it... You know, it gets you back engaged in in the driving task. Um, level three um, is where the human has to take over and has to be in constant monitoring, um, and will allow. Uh, by the way, GM has the only system that they this the automakers themselves say this is level two and this is what we're certifying right. it to. Um, so GM is the only one that actually says you can take your hands off the wheel. Um, lots of people do this with other cars, and like the car needs a haptic response. It needs to feel that you've got your hands on the wheel. So they're doing it when I was seventeen. Oh, they shouldn't have that. Yeah, yeah I mean, I heard people you know tie a, a half empty water bottle to the right. steering wheel so it gives it a haptic response so they can sit in the back seat right. or whatever. But um, and and the Tesla system does change lanes and does other things. Um, um, I haven't spent as much time in that car to to give you a, a, a driver's experience of it. But level three is going to be is automation where the human has to be monitoring the system. Level four is automation, but with some restraint or some constraint on it. So it's like level five, but it may be it's only in Manhattan south of 45th Street. Mm -hmm. It's only on roads wherein there's no precipitation. It's It's got some constraint on the system that it won't drive in all conditions on all roads all the time. Um, and so... That's, uh, Waymo is testing that, um, and a number of other, other automakers are out testing systems at level four. Level three is a little more difficult because it does require that human to take over, right. um, and that that handoff is not always smooth and not So we are easy. years away, are we not, from anything resembling level five, where you really have a fully autonomous self-driving car? I think most uh, companies that are active in the space have have issued some caution about level five. It's unlikely that I would ever be able to get in my car and say, take me to Kristen's office in Ann Arbor and go to sleep. How long do you want to live? Uh, longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, you know. Or longer than getting killed in the highway. Um, the the systems are pretty good, and, and driving is, is very complex. Um, and, you know, they're doing lots of on-road testing. They're doing lots of simulated miles um, and really working to solve this problem. Um, and quite frankly, you know, the automakers have been working on solving this problem since the 1920s, 1930s. Right. Um, you know, there were exhibitions at the World's Fair, uh, you know, and 
GM had this these videos, these old grainy videos you can find online of uh, these roads that have magnetic strips in them. And I mean, really... 1939 World's Fair. That's yeah. Right. So, you know, they lock into, you know, the lateral control and the, and the, uh, and the speed. And, you know, as long as you're staying in your lane and, and going at a certain speed um, and maintaining the distance between other vehicles, then, like, that seems like a pretty easy task. But I think right. most of the folks who got engaged in automated driving underestimated how complex driving can be and all of the things that you have to detect and 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 pay attention to you know the the person in our office who's really expert on this um uh pointed out he said you know do you want your automated vehicle to follow the rules of the road right okay do you want it to follow the you rules would think of the road so. you would think so but there's lots of times and if you think about it when you're driving home today that you don't follow the rules of the road. And, you know... spying on me. Nobody does. (laughs) Well, lots of people don't. Um, And so, you know, what he gave me as an example is there was a a right turn lane that opens up, and it has a solid line for a period because of the the bike lane that's there. But because it was coming out of an industrial park, lots of people cross that solid line into the right lane to get over there. But if you're following the rules of the road, you would not cross into that right turn lane until you got to the dotted line where it is legal to then get into that lane. Lots of us were going into the right lane over the solid line. Or getting to the left turn lane before you're supposed to. Or getting into the left turn lane before you're supposed to, or just doing unpredictable, weird human things. And I think that's the other part. Um, So in a, they call it a geofence, where there is a um, a specific area that the vehicle has you know has mapped out these roads really well. They you know it's it's been practiced and and is uh, it's uh, machine learning has learned these roads very well and it's limited to driving in that area. Um, fine if that's the only vehicle that's there, but it's going to interact with conventional vehicles driven by humans. Then you know humans are a big disturbance factor into that system. If it was only automated vehicles on roads they that would had, not behave themselves, that's right. But yeah. um, and you can program it to do what it needs to do and follow the rules. But humans don't follow the rules, um, and humans are unpredictable. And I want to point out in the bigger economics of the, of the situation, these new vehicles cost a lot of money, um, and the average vehicle on the road is something close to twelve years old. So just turning over the fleet right. till you have vehicles that have many of these systems you know, crash avoidance systems, lane keeping systems, adaptive cruise well, control, of te- all of the steps to automation is going to sure. take a long time. But the history of technology is that things, when they're introduced, cost a whole lot of money, and as time goes on, the quality gets better and the price comes down. Right. So I would guess that might happen also with uh, autonomous vehicles. That might happen, but, I mean, it also has to make economic sense to folks. And I think, right. you know, it makes some sense in fleet application where you can have that vehicle in operation 24-7. And that's why you see companies like Uber and Lyft that are ride-hailing companies who are investing in these technologies. They want to, you know, get the driver out of the situation here. Um, But, you know, we've looked at this too. And, you know, only in super dense areas do you have high utilization of, you know, 70 or 80%. Otherwise, you're you're shuttling somebody you know, from the airport out to Birmingham or something, and then you deadhead back to the airport or, right. you know, go without a, a rider. You're not making any money when you're deadheading, so you have to charge that rider more right. for that ride because you've got to get back to where you can pick up 
uh, passengers right. again. And that's why in a very dense urban core, Washington, D.C., or Boston, or um, New York, or, you know, Beijing and Shanghai yeah. and all these all these very dense urban areas of Paris and London, um, it could make sense because you're not uh, riding empty very often. Right. Um, there's also some big assumptions, I think, um, in some of those business models about these vehicles don't require repair. As you know, they can go 500,000 miles. Um, people want to share rides, and you know, I'm not so sure they do. I'm not so sure they do either, and. You know, for a while, like in our office, uh, once in a while we'd get a car, you know, an evaluation car. But, you know, a few years ago, I wouldn't be able to do anything with that car other than go out to lunch because I needed a baby seat in the back. And a baby seat's a pain in the butt to take out of the car and reinstall in another car and then move it to something else. And people use their vehicles as, you know, portable garages. You know, you've got your hockey equipment in the back. You've got all this other stuff. Um, so to go to an, a model where automated vehicles take you everywhere you need to go and we have less personal vehicle ownership, I think we're quite a ways away from that because people use their cars differently and don't mind that that asset's sitting in their driveway because the convenience factor of being it's able to go. of their house. Well, and it's, con- you know, why don't people take the bus? Right. Because you've got to stand somewhere and wait and you've got to go to a schedule and then when you're ready to leave, you've got to wait. Um, and, you know, there's some of that latency built into, you know, an automated vehicle that would pick you up and drive you around, too. But, like, right now, if I'm like, okay, I want to go, you know, I forgot something for this recipe, I've got to go to the grocery store, or I need to do, I don't, I'm not dependent on any schedule at all. That convenience factor of having my drive, my car in my driveway, and I can go where I want to go, when I want to go there, is going to be something Americans are going to have a hard time giving up. I, I think you're absolutely right. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the whole concept of electric vehicles, electricity, the big, uh, and I'm entranced by you saying that an F-150 electric truck is coming. Mm-hmm. The The whole problem is, you know better than I, has always been the length of battery life. Mm-hmm. Is this being solved? It's getting better. Um, so you mean the, on the charge? On the charge. How long yeah. do you go without a charge? Which right. is why hybrids have come in and electric vehicles really haven't too much. Well, and I think, you know, in the next couple of years, you're going to see a real explosion of electric and electrified vehicles on the market. What's the difference? Um, so electric, pure battery or electric is, it has no um, engine. It's not a hybrid. It right. just has a battery and you plug it in and that's its fuel. Um, so then there's plug-in hybrids that have a engine and a battery and can work on either. Um, there's hybrids that don't plug in. Um, so those are... Uh, generating electricity from the regenerative braking and from the motor that's running. And um, so it's, you know, a a, a hybrid system. It's charging up its own battery. Um, And, you know, there's a wide range. And and then there's 48-volt systems, which I can't explain very well. (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, But if you look out in the next couple of years, so I've got some friends um, in Ann Arbor, and, you know, listeners know Ann Arbor, what it's, we're known as crunchy, you know, environmental tree-hugging kind of people. Um, so I've got a couple of friends who are looking into, you know, putting solar on the roof and then they want to get an electric car and they want to be completely not dependent on the grid. And, you know, they went out and looked at cars right now and they're like, well, they're really expensive. And, you know, there's like just a handful of things available. So I said, you know, in two years, there's going to be like an explosion of models available. So right now in the sedan segment, you know, it's the... Chevy Bolt, the Nissan Leaf, the Tesla Model 3, these are kind of making up the bulk of 
of the systems. There's a lot of hybrids out there. There's a plug-in Pacifica from FCA. What's the most miles they can get on a charge? Um, they go, they're going out to about 300 now. Okay. I mean, so, and the battery costs are coming down rapidly. Um, so it's, you know, it's becoming more of a, an economically sensible thing to do. Um, and, but, you know, the, the, think about the, the pickup trucks. So some people have a pickup truck to tow big, heavy stuff, snowmobiles and horses and, right. and work trucks kind of things. They're going to carry heavy loads and they're, you know, so the, the payload capacity matters to them and things like that. I don't know that an electric truck right out of the bat is going to work for them, but there's a ton of pickup trucks and vans that are out, you know, fixing phone lines and cable, installing cable at your house. Right. They're not towing heavy stuff. They're, you know, the plumber, the people who have trucks for work trucks that don't need the heavy load capacity. Um, many of those are in fleets that are going to come back to the same place every night. So a charging situation where they're going to, you know, charge back at home base overnight. Um, and, you know, we did a study for one of those providers um, about a decade or so ago. And I was really shocked to find out that, you know, a service vehicle like that may only drive 60 or 100 miles a day as it goes from your house to somebody else's house to somebody else's house. You know, they're not doing a ton of miles. So that kind of driving takes more of a wear and tear in the car, doesn't it, than getting on the freeway? It does. Um, and, you know, battery's really w good for this. And, you know, for some of those systems where um, you might need a generator when you're on site, you know, a, a battery electric pickup truck that can also serve as a generator for providing electricity out, you know, when you're, um, you know, clearing phone lines or doing something in, that requires power on, on site. Um, you know, there, there could be, you know, some real synergies there, but I think fleet pickup trucks, uh, for service vehicles make a ton of sense. Um, pickup trucks, electric pickup trucks that aren't carrying heavy payloads and towing, um, you know, pick, electric has incredible torque. And I mean, we saw that, uh, with, you know, the Tesla Cybertruck tried to, you know, show how capable they were by towing a F-150 up a hill, um, not exactly a fair comparison because F-150 wasn't four-wheel drive and, right. and all that kind of thing. But um, And there was somebody at Ford who said, you know, we'll take that challenge. Let's let, Give us your truck and we'll show you what a real F-150 can do. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, we're going to see electrification across not just the trucks, but vans and CUVs and more hybrids than we've been seeing. Um, it's partly, you know, it, it's a, it, there's a couple of things going on. One is the the rest of the world has very aggressive uh, standards for fuel economy moving forward, and the government of California and the states that align with California. Um, and in order to meet those standards, these uh, these global automakers have to develop these technologies. Um, and then, as part of the new trade deal uh, that exists uh, as signed yesterday. Um, we uh, we see that there's an incentive to locate uh, advanced battery production in North America. Um, I think there's a lot of logis logistical reasons why they will do that as well. So are you saying that kicking or screaming, even if it's kicking and screaming because of the world market, the Detroit Three are going to be dragged along and they're doing it? They're going to have to do it to to be part of the global market for vehicles, yeah. I've got a, one little snarky environmental question. You mentioned your friends who want to be off the grids, so they want to get an electric car. But don't, doesn't that require plugging your electric car into something that will burn fossil fuels to reduce? See, they were getting battery? solar roofs. So, so right, uh, but <laughs> but still, electrification right now. It's usually 
the the charge is if you you know plug it into something, it's conventional means that are being generating the recharge. Um, and yeah, and that the grid cleanliness or the what the grid right. is is varies by region. Exactly. Um, you know, a lot a lot of places it's nuke it's nukes, and some places it's hydro, and you know the grid is cleaner in different parts of the country than in others. Um, Nissan uh, just put out a, a sustainability report. Um, I had it on my Twitter feed this week um, and retweeted it, and they showed a chart that showed a conventional internal combustion engine uh, vehicle and where it incurs its carbon. Right. Um, versus a leaf. Um, and so the leaf may have a greater uh, degree of carbon pull for the manufacturing process because they are importing uh, many of their this components. This is Nissan's purely electric car. Yeah, this is their battery electric car. Um, but the operational use, the carbon for operational use, is much, much smaller than it is from a traditional gasoline electric. So there is a net reduction in carbon over the life of the vehicle. But initially, the first, the, the manufacturer incurs more uh, carbon. And you're right, in certain regions of the of the country, it's it's a coal-fired car. Right, which is not exactly environmentally friendly. Um, finally, you know, we're talking about all these wonderful environmental things, but a big part of car culture, certainly in metropolitan Detroit, has always been muscle cars, you know, cars that burn a lot of, uh, a lot of gasoline and are, are built to you know do high performance things. Is that going away? Well, you know, there was uh, just recently a publisher of um, a number of those enthusiast magazines pulled back. I think ten titles that they're not going to publish anymore, and they're moving more to an online realm. Um, you well, know, that's true of all publication in general. Well, and I think you know, and there's still enthusiasts right. out there, and there's still a need for. Uh, muscle cars and and you know, let's talk about the Mach E. The Ford um, took the Mustang name um, and put it on a CUV, an electric CUV. Um, you know, there's we're not far away from an electric Mustang too. And these well, the jury's out on how well that will do. You remember Ford took the Thunderbird name and put it on an increasing succession of larger and clunky vehicles. And uh... well, they did, but I mean, I think that. A, an electric vehicle or electrified vehicle has incredible torque off the line. It is the, the fine they're fun to drive. Torque for those of us who didn't know that well in physics, uh, you uh, can go fast quickly. So right. you don't <laughs> how's that? So you you don't have any you know you know ramping up zero to sixty times are right. much much faster. They're fun to drive, um, and they can be really sporty and and uh, and enjoyable to to drive. They don't have that same you know throaty. Right. Noise that uh, that uh, you know maybe a Charger, or Challenger, right. or Corvette, and um, those vehicles have had. Uh, but I think we're going to see a, a wide range of propulsion across all of the segments, including in the performance segments. What else should people know, or people be on the lookout for, for in the auto industry in the coming months and years? Um, well, in the coming months, I mean, I'm, I still have, see incredible uncertainty around trade, despite the fact that the USMCA uh, changes have just been signed. Um, it looks like there's a green light from the AFL-CIO and the Democrats in the House to move forward with implementing this new uh, new NAFTA for North America. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of things that have to change in order for... Kind of the ironic, the day they're voting on impeachment the president, they're sort of congratulating him and accepting the new NAFTA. Um, you know, they changed it quite a bit. Right. Um, and I think, um, you know, there's some changes in the supply chain that will need to take place, but we still have an ongoing 
uh, trade dispute with China. Right. Uh, we have a phase one deal with Japan that doesn't address autos yet, and that you know is going to ramp back up in the spring uh, to start talking about and you know bringing autos into the trade deal with Japan. Uh, Europe, we have a set of tariffs so far that have um, only been around the Boeing Airbus dispute and you know cheese and wine and right. um, German men's swimsuits. Um, a number of weird things got tariffed in, right. in the U EU, U.S. I didn't know about the swimsuits. Yeah, well, know. you know, they're they're very much more expensive now. Um, uh, but I think that we're still in a, in a period of uncertainty about where the tariff situation is going to go. And regardless of who wins the election next November, um, some of these trade disputes may continue. I think there's bipartisan support, at least for um, some some degree of uh, resolution to the China issue. Trade, China. We should mention the trade disputes with China and Japan were around long before President Trump. They were. And I, th and I think that there's not a, there's, there's bipartisan buy-in to that there's issues there, but there is, there are different tactics that right. um, a Democratic president may be more multilateral in their approach than uh, this president has approached them very bilaterally. So I think there's still a lot of uncertainty around trade and tariffs for this industry going forward. But, you know, we've got new trade, we got new agreements with the union that look to be um, uh, in place and we can move forward from that. So there's not uncertainty around what the wages and benefits are going to be for the next four years. Um, we know that the, the uh, technology pathway is is fairly risky and uncertain. Um, and you know some of that can intersect with the trade issues too. So, um, so it's going to continue to be a fascinating, complex, and hugely important industry. Yeah, and it's still going to be here in Michigan. I mean, a lot of the R and D, a lot of the you know the the development and the brains of this industry, even in the automation sector. Um, you know, everybody thinks it's you know Silicon Valley is running away with that or Pittsburgh, um, but they all come back to here, and, and Detroit's a big player in that. Well, we're still, the, we're still the automobile state. We are. Or at least maybe the vehicle state, maybe we should say it that way. <laughs> well, as always, when I talk to you, I found it utterly fascinating. Part of me wants to go on for hours, but you've got other commitments. And But this is a topic that I think you can never really know enough about for Detroit, which really never grows old. So thank you so much for making this time today. You're welcome. You can also catch up with my writing and many essays and podcasts you may have missed in my blog, LessonVeryInc.com. It's ink as an ink pen, not as in corporation. And if you do, please go to my website and subscribe. The Price is Right. It's absolutely free to subscribe to both my podcast and my writing. I want to thank my guest again for taking the time to come to our studio here at Startup Nation in Birmingham and also thank everyone who donated to help fund the production costs of this podcast. If you too would like to help keep these podcasts going, I'd be thrilled if you'd send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog or via check, snail mail, if you still use snail mail, to the Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street in Plymouth, Michigan, 48170, or message me on Facebook or via my blog for more details. And, again, I hope to see you next time. Listen to more episodes, tell your friends, and feel free to get in contact with me. This is Jack Lesenberry with the Politics and Prejudices Podcast. I'll see you again soon.